Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large Podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I hope you're all enjoying listening and reading. So as everybody knows, live events is starting to come back. There's little bits and pieces. Some people are to get on airplanes and go to places, but still the vast majority of our entertainment that we receive comes through our tiny little devices that are glued to our hands or glued to our laptops and uh, desktops. And basically our entire world of entertainment is, is not really sitting in a room with like-minded people these days. It's sitting in our own little isolated cabins and couches and sunrooms. And we're all kind of still separated and trying to share some sort of communal experience. So what that means is everybody who is finding ways to work right now is having to convert all of their knowledge from the rock and roll theater and live events industry into television, whether it be an iPhone or a professional camera, a lot of us are having to adapt our skills and kind of figure out how to make these things look as best as possible and be as competitive as possible in such a tough entertainment market. I thought it would be a great day to reach out to the man who, who quite literally wrote the book on the topic one of my longtime friends and a living legend in the industry. Please welcome Jeff Ravitz. He is the lighting designer and founding partner at Intensity Advisors. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, Jeff. It's always a pleasure to see your smiling face. And uh, we always have the red shirt going on. We're, that's kind of our, our brotherly hood there. <laughs> <laughs> So one of the things I've always admired is that you seem to have the ability to see things through the camera using your naked eye. I've always been able to, you know, you, you, you always have the monitors available and the, the light meters, but I've always felt like you actually have an, a, like a second, a sixth sense about how to, how the cameras are going to pick up a bunch of your shots. Is that always something that you've, does that cultivate that? It, it was no? not. It was not always that way at all. The fact is, you know, I started as a theatrical lighting designer and spent a lot of time on the road doing concert work and never thought about the camera at all until the MTV video revolution of the early 80s came around. And suddenly my live shows were being captured for uh, either as TV specials or, or music videos to use uh, on the MTV platform. And so for the first time I had people coming in, kind of picking apart, evaluating, criticizing my 
lighting from a, a camera point of view. Beautiful show, but this isn't going to work for the camera. That's not going to work for the camera. Whether it would be uh, color uh, that would be overly saturated, not even color from an artistic point of view. Maybe I, in those days, you know, it was not unusual to light your talent in saturated colors to work for the mood of, of a moment in the show. And it was just all fun, fun lighting and visceral uh, lighting that, you know, kind of conveyed the emotion. But some of those colors were too saturated for the cameras of those days to actually process properly. So you would, they would just, it would come out distorted looking and that's not helping anybody. Uh, or one person on stage would be three times brighter than somebody else and they'd both be in the same camera shot. And so one person would be either blown out and the other person would look good or one person would look good and the other person would look dark because they had calibrated for the really bright person or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, a million variations of that, of that concept. Or they would do a close-up on somebody and, you know, come to find out that 90% of the shots of these televised events are close-ups because that's really what people want to see. Uh, they're mm -hmm. looking the you know, expressions on the artist's faces and so forth. And some, some of the lighting from that standpoint really wasn't very flattering. Now, maybe flattering wasn't really the idea, but some, some of the lighting just really didn't work for the camera. And for the people out there that are watching the show, it made it harder for them to relate to what they were seeing. On so all of these things you know, were sort of handed to me as things that needed to be adjusted. And there would be generally a director of photography or a lighting director that would come in with the video team. And slowly but surely, we'd work through, through the show or the song, depending on what was being shot, and adjust it. Sometimes they adjusted things in a way that I felt took all of the essence out of it. Uh, sometimes they did things that took the, the energy and the balls out of a, out of a cue. Uh, or they overly sanitized the look. So it really didn't resemble at all what I was trying to like say, you know, with, with that cue. Um, and that bothered me. But as the cameras got better over the years, it was less necessary to do things like that. And also the DPs um, at, or the lighting directors who really weren't theatrical designers at all. And some of them came from the sports industry. Some of them came from the commercial, you know, the TV commercial industry. They, over the years, began to develop more of an aesthetic style as well so that they understood what we were trying to do and didn't step all over our cues as badly. So fast forward, you know, many years when suddenly IMAG was a thing because back then IMAG was not a given. In fact, it was highly unusual. But suddenly you are seeing your show up on a screen as you're doing it live. And you're seeing what works and what doesn't work all day, all throughout the show, every, every show. And that's how I started to get more of a sense, like combined with all the people that kind of talked me through the shows in the early days and seeing it every day. Sometimes they give you a little monitor as well as seeing it on the screen. And you're saying, oh, wow, that color does look a little weird on camera. If I took it down one step of saturation, I would still have the feel of the, 
uh, of the cue that I was trying to create, but it wouldn't uh, distort so much on camera. Or if I move that light uh, just two feet over stage left, I could get a more pleasing angle and it would still pretty much have the vibe that I was going for initially. And so it began, I started to develop that eye. And then eventually, you know, I got a meter and I started, you know, when you do that sort of thing long enough, you begin to know without necessarily looking at your meter, how bright something is, how com it's, it's mu so much about comparisons. You know, mm -hmm. the whole show is bright, they can deal with it. If half stage right is bright and stage left is dark, they can't deal with it. And even <laughs> more, more subtle gradations of that. So you begin to develop an eye, you begin to see the colors for, for what works and what doesn't work. And then of course the cameras have gotten a lot better. I sort of said to myself, if I ever get in a position to do this and sort of life brought me to being able to do what I do now, which is adapt live shows for TV or design them from scratch for TV, I said, I'm not gonna come in and be that person that totally wipes the crap out of the essence of a show. I'm gonna try to retain it so that it's still your, your show, Mr. or Ms. Designer, it's your show, but, and the people at home will see your show as you want it to be. People in the audience will still see a really good show. Maybe some of those shades are gonna be a little different. Maybe some of the intensities are going to be a little different, but it's gonna work for the, for the live audience as well. So there you go. That's it in kind of a large nutshell, coconut shell. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a tough shell to crack there. So you and I, we're just about old enough to remember when concerts happened in concert halls, theaters happened in theaters, and television happened in studios. And now we, that's, that's a luxury that, was, that we all enjoyed back then because you could have different settings for different environments. Now we don't have, nobody has that luxury anymore. Everybody is being filmed all the time now. I mean, there isn't a performance that isn't filmed and broadcast across the universe now. That's right. That's right. Well, I mean, even if it's by the audience themselves and then they put it on, uh, on YouTube or wherever right after the show. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, and the, the artists are, uh, they're concerned with their image. They've gone, you know, to a lot of trouble to, you know, look a certain way and have their show look a certain way. And suddenly they're seeing what shows up on YouTube. Now, maybe they could take that with a grain of salt because they know that it's an unprofessional depiction of the show, but they don't, they get- No, they don't. You know, suddenly, because then there's a picture of them uh, plastered forever, for eternity, somewhere on the internet. That doesn't mm -hmm. look very good. Right. Now, you and I used to be able to have the luxury of saying, well, you know, we need to focus on the 10,000 people here and not the, you know, 400 people who are gonna view it for archival purposes later on. Now it's the complete opposite. You and I, in a, even in a live setting, the 10,000 people pales in comparison to the millions that could be seeing it online. So, I mean, our priorities have almost completely shifted to that we have to make them look good for you know, the 12 professional cameras and definitely the 10,000 you know, not professional cameras in the audience. Well, exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, I've been working at Coachella for the last five years. This year would have been my sixth. 
but it ain't happening. Uh, <laughs> and I see shows that, you know, there are 25 to 45,000 people that can jam into the main stage for the headliner show that closes, closes the night. That's a lot of people by anybody's standards. But I think my first year at Coachella, you know, six years ago, they said that uh, for, they had 4 million people watching online. Then a couple of years later, by the time Beyonce did her headline show, it was 80 million and, uh, you know, and it spikes for certain performers, but overall, and that goes around the world, anybody can watch Coachella if they want to. Mm -hmm. And so that's the conversation that I have with the LDs who are very loyal to the people that buy the tickets and take the trouble to go out there and stand in the heat and watch the show. I get it. I totally get it. But there are also a lot of people out there that buy, buy albums, they buy videos, they buy swag. And, um, you know, they only get to see your artist in this screen. That's all they get to see. They don't understand why something just doesn't look right. And that's their entire experience with your show. So mm -hmm. maybe you find, you know, I don't ask them to totally change it, but can we just look at this and can we look at that? And um, if we can, we can make it work for both, both sides, the live and the televised side. So I think that that conversation used to go one way and I think it goes another now. I think it used to be that the touring LD took priority and they would say, no, look, my artist wants it like this and this is the way I'm going to do it. But now I think that the, the priorities have switched and I think the DP or the camera director gets the priority now to say, no, you're going to, you're at my venue now. You're going to have to switch it up a little bit for my camera guys because, you know, we've already done this amount of, you know, we, we've got this sort of vibe that we're trying to create with the whole Coachella brand. I think that that's switching now. I think the television viewers are taking the priority. I uh, respectfully beg to differ. Okay. My experience was that as a young touring LD, the video team came in and pretty much swept me aside and said, we'll take it from here. I mean, some of them were nicer. Some of them involved me with the process and some of them didn't. And I just kind of stood there and watched as they, you know, kind of like, you know, poured white paint out of a fire hose all <laughs> over my show. <laughs> um, and, and that didn't feel good at all because I, you know, felt like they were, that the, the viewers were not going to see my show or, or the show of the band that I was working for. You know, it's not just make it about me, but there was a, a big picture to consider. Now that I'm in that video seat and I should be the one coming and saying, here I am, let me just kind of work my magic. No, now it is, I get a lot of pushback from, from the tour LDs who say, my client doesn't want that. My client doesn't want, well, Coachella is a case in point. All the indie bands are no front light, period. That's the rule. And, you know, and, and there are a lot of, lot of other aesthetic things that, that uh -huh. they So I got into TV just at the point where, again, I had no more power. <laughs> <laughs> so I just sort of went from one low part of the seesaw to the other low part of the seesaw. I never <laughs> the up part. 
So I don't know how that happened, you know, go figure. But, but I mean, truly, uh, I, can, I can work it if I need to, because I've got a producer on my side that can go to somebody if need be. I work it as much as I can, and I really don't like to make it from me to, to the LD, who um, ultimately this should be a, a, a group decision, but there's never time for that. And the right oh. people are never available at that moment, you know, that, that you need to be making those decisions so that they just kind of recite the company line or whether it's their personal line or whether they're saying my artist won't stand for that. And they're really just saying, I won't stand for that. I don't know. I, I can't always tell. And I, and I get why they're, why they're not wanting me to interfere. But I think there's something at stake, just as you said, everything's on TV these days. And I do think there's a way to find now, of course, I'm coming in sometimes at Coachella right there at the moment that they just have to pull it all together. They've got a few hours to do it. But for the headliners, I speak to them weeks in advance and we can get it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, never perfect, but you can make it better than it might have been. All right. So it sounds like instead of having that uh, discussion over and over and over again, you decided that it might be a better way to write a book on the topic. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm, you know, Jim asked me, you know, if I would work on this book with him. And of course, the first thing that really came to mind was how can you bridge that gap between live and television and, and make it work, work for both sides. So I have a personal you know, horse in that race. And, you know, I feel like it's the life that I live, you know, every day of my current career and that I had a good place to come from to articulate it. Yeah. The book was a, a great way because I could just say what I want to say. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody who's listening, uh, Jeff has a book coming out. It is available for pre-order. It is called lighting for televised live events, making your live production look great for the eye and the camera. It sounds like you have been working on this for quite a while, and then you kind of put some final, some final uh, brushstrokes during the isolation period. Yeah, it's been. I think it, it, by the time it comes out, will be almost three years, which is uh, astounding to me that we've been working on it for that long. But it took a while to get it together. Uh, I was doing it in between work projects, and um, um, and then the pandemic hit. And I thought, okay, this will give me an opportunity to finish it up. And I still had all of the photos and uh, dozens and dozens of schematics and diagrams and things like that. And that took a long time. And then the thing that takes maybe the hardest thing about any book that has photos in it is getting the permissions. That took months. Yeah, there's a lot of logistics involved a lot of logistics and it's not anybody's priority, but mine. So they say, uh, I'll get that to you right away. And they don't, or they have to uh, work through a hierarchy of 11 people, including, you know, a manager, an artist, uh, an attorney to get the permission. Sometimes after waiting two months, you find out that you're not going to get the permission. There's all of that stuff to deal with. So uh, that was, that was a process I never anticipated. And now when I mention it to people, they go, oh yeah, I hear that all the time, but I didn't know. Man, the motivation necessary to, to pull that off. Cause number one, you got to pour your yourself out onto the pages. 
you got to question everything. And then once you've poured it all onto the paper and got it approved, then you have to go through all the logistics of making sure that it looks the best way possible. That takes a lot of motivation, Jeff. I'm, I'm you know, hats off to you. Yeah, thanks, thanks. It's, look, it's all been fun. What I guess what doesn't kill you makes you better. And uh, <laughs> yes. I, um, I have enjoyed it. It's been frustrating. I've lost some sleep you know, over it and stressed about it. And I find myself thinking about better ways to do certain things in the book all the time, no matter what I'm doing, that always seems to be sort of like floating somewhere in my brain. Uh, but it's really been fun and kind of proud of myself for having gotten through the process because, you know, writing a book that just sounds insurmountable, you know, so I'm, I'm glad, glad to have done it. So you were lucky enough to be able to work with Jim Moody on this one, and he has written quite a few books previous to this. Was it a lot of help having somebody, uh, having a seasoned vet on your side? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he kind of knows what works and what doesn't work from, uh, you know, from a structural point of view and uh, certainly helped with a lot of the, uh, the logistics just from the uh, uh, getting, you know, dealing with the publisher and getting, getting things straightened out and understanding everything that goes into the mechanics of, of writing a book. So uh, tremendously helpful. And uh, I'm so grateful to him for that. How do you two break up the workload? Do you guys just take a chapter by chapter or section by section? Yes, yes. We did a chapter by chapter, mapped out the chapters, even though version one doesn't at all resemble the final product. Uh, it was a place to start. <laughs> Never does. Never, Never does. does. And, uh, and then we assigned chapters to each other. And a lot of that changed as well. And, and, that, and then we just went off and we met uh, weekly or bi-weekly to uh, share chapters. You know, we'd share them online with one another and then uh, get together and talk them, talk them through and uh, critique each other's chapters. And, um, and then eventually, uh, you know, got to the point where we were, you know, starting to see things on paper. Uh, does this come from a personal, like, or is, is this full of personal stories, or is there a lot more of the science involved, or is it uh, is it completely a technical book? Um, well, I wouldn't say it's completely technical. No, I'll kind of break it down into the science of it. Yeah, which you know has to do with the camera and and uh, and how light works with the camera and angles and things like that. And then there's the art, and we talk about the aesthetics, and then we do talk about production and how it all is applied to real shows. And there aren't a lot of stories. Uh, there are, are one or two, but uh, and in a way, there are real uh, situations woven throughout to kind of explain things, but there aren't specific stories about in being on the battleground of certain productions. I tried not to name names. I just thought I can't afford those lawsuits. <laughs> yeah, if you think getting uh, permission for photos is difficult, try and get permission to, to yeah. bad talk a, a client. There is a lot of sex in the book, I have to admit. <laughs> hey, you, what, what, is a, what is a lighting book without some sexiness and some, exactly, uh, some exactly. good stories? Well, I wanted to call the book 50 Shades of Minus Green, but the publisher didn't go for it. <laughs> You would think that that would get some more headlines like that, but I think no. So, but uh, yeah, it was the right thing. Oh man, 
they're so they're so protective of those things <laughs> so in the in the in the book do you kind of go from what it was to be lighting for uh for film and then going to lighting for digital cameras yeah well we talk about that um uh to a certain extent uh there's not all that much going on lighting for film these days but no. there's reference made to sort of the transition uh but what we do uh, discuss is the multi-camera concept, as opposed to the way most films are shot, which is single camera, where they can do a full lighting setup for one look and do everything that's necessary for that look, break it down and go to the next look and light that perfectly. For multi-camera, we have to be you know, perfectly lit for every conceivable point of view, including the reverse shot, you know, the camera that's bolted to the symbols and sh shooting, you know, cross stage, the robo cam or the, or the camera that's, you know, under the drum riser shooting out in that direction. Everything needs to look good. It all needs to have coverage, composition, balance, you know, and, and exposure, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's um, really what we, we distinguish between the single camera and the multi-camera. Um, because 99% of live entertainment or events that are being shot for, for it, whether it's TV or streaming, uh, are multi-camera. Yeah, there is no end in sight for the multi-camera shots either. Everybody seems to want to put a camera everywhere. If you can put a camera on the underneath the snare, people are going to do it. They're going to put they're going to put a camera there. Well, I did uh, a Kevin Hart comedy special in a football stadium th three or four years ago, and they had 25 cameras, I think, and uh, one of them was a blimp. So <laughs> what are you going to do? You've got to think about just about everything. <laughs> That's every angle imaginable there. If you got the blimp and everything. Right, right. So really what the book you know, kind of works towards is you've got to train your eye and your brain to think about all of this and, you know, see things immediately. Yeah, your meter is great. Your monitor is great. That gives you, uh, you know, kind of a real sense of what it may look like out there, you know, to, to the viewers uh, in the universe. Uh, but it starts with your eye. You immediately have to assess what's going on. Um, and, uh, if you're going to adapt a show that's currently on the road, for instance, and, you know, I mean, I've done everything from concerts to stand-up comedy to, uh, operas that are already on the road with an existing design that need to be adapted and you go and visit the show and yeah, you can video it and study it later, but you also have to have an immediate sense the minute you see it of what uh, the task is ahead of you and what needs to be uh, uh, concentrated on primarily. Mm -hmm. So I remember when it was, you know, three and four camera shots. And if somebody added a fifth camera, you would have to be like, okay, hold on now. Let me kind of consider that camera. And you'd have to make sure that everything looks good through that, from that angle. But now with 25, like we can't, we can't really do that anymore. We can't, go and take a look at every single monitor, every single shot. We kind of just have to take a more overarching approach to just make sure that everything looks good from every angle. Well, the frustrating part, and I guess part of the, the challenge of doing this 
as, as well as it can be done is that sometimes you get a really beautiful looking shot from one angle and you don't want to mess with it because it really works. And then you see it from another angle and you think, oh, now I've got I've to fix this up because it really isn't working. And so you then have to do what is necessary for that shot only to perhaps have messed up the original shot. You know? So that's what you really have to, have to look at. You know, it's a subtle, subtle thing. How can I fix this? I mean, do, I, do you just accept it? Sometimes you just accept what it looks like from a really oddball shot because it almost looks like a cinema verite backstage shot. It's a rough around the edges, but it's also something that the audience wouldn't have an opportunity to see otherwise. I mean, that's what the whole cool thing about IMAG as well as all of these you know, TV and streamed productions is the audience gets to go places that they have no chance of going as a live audience member sit, sitting out there in the crowd. So sometimes a, a less than perfect shot is almost an interesting shot and you have to make that judgment. And so, you know, there's a fine line between interesting and just horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, there's, there's a, it takes a certain sort of artist to be like, to be able to tell which ones are sloppy and which ones are avant-garde, you know, just to, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah e exactly. Exactly. So that's what you're doing. You know, the book is really aimed at students and professionals that might be in the, in the live uh, sector that either want to make a career move more into this, or they just want to understand more so that when the, the, the video crew comes in, they can be helpful. They can be cooperative. They can, you know, be part of the part of the process. A lot of times when I work on theatrical type things like an opera, the designers are, I'm there while the designers are queuing the show. For some reason, I seem to, you know, operas don't have really long runs. And so uh, you're going to shoot the show shortly after it opens. So the designer is manically trying to get the live show happening. And then they'll take a break at some point and let me, you know, kind of rework what I need to rework, or they just get it to the point where it's ready to go and they leave and they don't want to be, they don't even want to see it. They don't want to know what happens, you know, what, when I start putting my hands on it. and, uh, you know, I, I try to let them know that I'm not going to be, you know, totally reworking the show. So it's unrecognizable. Uh, but even so, they don't want to see one cue touched. So, uh, so this is so the books for people that want to understand more about what the process is. I try to set people at ease. So you know, there are all all kinds of people. A lot of a, a lot of folks out there are now realizing that TV is going to become a part of their responsibility, whether they like it or not. Because even if it's only for IMAG, even if your show isn't being broadcast. I have had lots of live artists that get the DVD or whatever format of the show, of the, the IMAG show, which is what, three, four cameras. Sometimes you can go, I think Bruce has, can go up to nine cameras. They complain that they don't, they don't feel like they look good. I mean, the older artists are wanting to look a little more flattered on camera. Mm -hmm. You know, not everybody wants to look 
just like a, a, a really you know, rough and tumble rock and roller. And the indie bands, okay, they, ha- they have a look that may not be a traditional flattered look. That's fine. That's a, that's a different way uh, to look at it. But even so, they want their show to look the way they want it to look. And when they see it on TV, sometimes it's not the way they thought it was going to be. So all of these LDs are now going to need to know a little bit more about the process. Yeah, we are never going back to the old way. I mean, from now on, everything is going to be filmed because we've seen that it's it's monetizable. We've seen that, you know, we've seen just how far it can go. You know, I don't think we're ever going to be going back to to anybody being able to say no, no cameras, no film, no no video recording the the show. It's just it's not going to be. That's uh, that's concert past right there. Right, right, right. I mean, just like there's going to be social media forever. And so our lives and our privacy has moved into kind of a new realm. And uh, we have to, you know, make it the best it can be. Uh, Same thing with, as you say, with, uh, you know, video and cameras for live entertainment. It's just everywhere. And even if it's just like a corporate meeting, uh, a lot of times, you, you know, you go into the a corporate meeting and see that it really could have been done a little better. Those people just want to look good on camera. They want to look inviting to their, whoever their customer base is or whoever is watching. Uh, One of the things that was most jarring for me when I first had to start transitioning to considering the video was just the jargon. Even if it's a, you know, I came from a rock and roll lighting world and started, people started mentioning color temperature and F-stops and background and for, and I didn't, you know, I didn't know that stuff. I thought it was just light people, light the money, match tempo and, and, and beats and, and away you go and you've got a good rock show. That's not where it's at anymore. We have to know all the different, yeah, we have to at least know what somebody's asking for when they ask us if we can bring up or down the color temperature or why we need minus greens. That's right. That's right. So we get into all of those ditzy little, you know, art and that there's a lot of science that goes into this and there's a lot of math that goes into this. And once you understand certain interrelations, interrelationships between one, sometimes, you know, there's a direct, you know, proportional relationship. You add to this and you add to that or you take away from this and it takes away from that. Or sometimes it goes the other way. You know, uh, once you understand that, I mean, exposure is a pretty good example of that mm-hmm. uh, and thinking, oh, well, that's really bright. Uh, so I'll just take that down. Uh, I'll have the uh, video engineer uh, compensate for that overly bright picture. And then what happens, the things that aren't lit sufficiently on stage then go darker and darker and darker as everything is being adjusted for this overly bright thing on stage. Uh, like, let's just as an example, the IMAG screen, you know, that the one that's like right behind everybody on stage, not mm-hmm. necessarily the one that's, you know, hanging, hanging way above, uh, above the rig. And so those can be so bright that either the screen is blown out and none of those carefully and expensively created con- uh, pieces of content are really visible or they take it way, way down. So the screen looks fantastic, but then the band disappears. Mm-hmm. So once you learn the science and the math of that, it starts to get a lot easier. And I tried to explain that. 
Cool. I, I look forward to reading up on that one. Uh, one of the conversations that always comes up is, uh, is audience lighting. It's really difficult for a lot of my artists when we go from a, uh, from a long tour where they're really accustomed to the audience being in the dark when they want them to. And then we film something and then all of a sudden the audience is all lit up and then the whole room is bright and, and it's, it's a different vibe for them. Is there, does you go into, do you go into detail about concert and lighting the audience? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for all different genres of performance, whether it's an awards show all the way to a concert and there's different styles and we talk about sort of the, uh, the aesthetics, but also the issue involved around not wanting the audience, you know, uh, seen. And, you know, sometimes a compromise or at least an understanding needs to be reached with the artist and a clever way to light the audience so that it doesn't, I mean, why don't they want to see the audience? Sometimes they just don't want to see them. And that's part of it. Sometimes they don't want the audience uh, blinded, and which might be distracting to them. And there are ways that you can uh, get around all of that if you're clever and skillful with it. You know, keeping everybody in the dark the whole night might not be a, uh, an option. But I mean, I've had situations, comedians are notorious for wanting the audience really dark because they don't want to see the one person in the audience that's not really digging the show. That totally throws them off. A rock, mm-hmm. a rock and roll band, you know, there there's so much momentum in what they're doing. They may not either notice it or be or or it won't throw their show off. A comedian, a single person on stage trying to tell funny stories can really be thrown off by something like that because they live and die by that give and take of, uh, of uh, laughter. Um, I had uh, Wanda Sykes walk out on stage. This is after two days of setting up and rehearsals. And I guess she didn't realize with that when we rehearsed and there was nobody in the audience that people were going to be seen. And so she walks out on stage live on camera and starts asking, what is this, what is this lighting in the audience? So this is in her performance, she is like directing us, take that out, take that out, take that out. And so we kind of tried to leave the architectural lights on, some blue lights on the ceiling and stuff like that. No, 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 not that. And I thought if I left that in, at least there'd be like a framework. So that entire show was done with no audience lights. So they couldn't really use reverse shots, you know, <laughs> very effectively. There's that, that sort of thing. So if you can, it's a conversation. It was probably ultimately my fault and the director's fault for not really talking her through that. And I think if we could have been a calm moment before the show, and same thing with the concert, with the concert acts. If you can talk them through and say, this is important for this reason. And, and, and I think that I have a way to do it so that it's not really going to affect the audience or you, you know, as acutely as you might think it would, can we do it? No, they still might put their foot down and say no, or they might see that there is a reason for maybe giving a little bit and that it may not ruin their show as much as they think it it would, but you know, you can't put your opinions on somebody else. Yeah. I would imagine eventually somebody's going to go and watch the video and they're like, Hey, that didn't look like there was anybody at your show. Was there anybody there? And she's like, uh, it was a full room. I just, we turned out the lights so you couldn't see them. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, I've had 
I've had that conversation with many artists, you know, Bruce including. We like the audience a lot for a Bruce Springsteen show, but there are on moments and accents and, mm-hmm. um, you know, parts of songs that make sense. And then suddenly the video happens, the TV special, and we're lighting the audience kind of full time. And then the other thing is you can say, okay, how about for these four songs and let them, let them lay it out. For these songs, we want absolute darkness. Okay, that's something you go. to work with um, and shoot around it. Yeah. And we'll, we'll just splice them in later when people are laughing, we'll, we'll show yeah. them laughing. And when they're not laughing, we'll leave them in the dark. I guess we've all done comedy shows where they pull laughs from one show and edit it into <laughs> others. <laughs> yeah, I've had artists that they only want to see the audience when they're dancing. If they're not dancing, you don't light the audience. When they're If they're standing up, you light them. When they sit down, you leave them in the dark and let them go to the, get their drinks and go to the bathroom, whatever. I guess there's something to that. <laughs> yeah, it, it changes every time. And those are all conversations that we have to have as early as possible, or, you know, as much as we can foresee stuff like that. There's a lot of coordination that has to happen here. And like anything in any marriage, you know, communication is the key. And when <laughs> you know, you're dealing with artists who look, they have a track record. They're not uh, having a, a, a TV show or a special made from their show because they didn't know what they were doing. They got to the point where uh, somebody thinks it's going to be interesting for the world to see their show. So they know what they're talking about and they've molded their career without you being there. And suddenly we come in and try to like remold their career. No, no, no. But if you communicate and talk about the priorities and what can be accomplished and why you want to do it, you might have a fighting chance. Yeah. Sounds so we don't, doesn't it? <laughs> you, might, you might have an artistic chance. <laughs> we are almost out of time, but one of the things I've been noticing a lot lately is I'm seeing artists with people of different colors, different skin tones, different shades. Is it becoming easier or more difficult in the digital world to light for people on the same stage of different skin colors with uh, people of color? You know, I always used to say, uh, you know, people have different skin tones and uh, you know, in real life they're darker or lighter or whatever, uh, you know, then, uh, and so that, that is the way they will look on stage, but I, I'm on camera, but I've discovered that um, I don't know if it's easier or harder, but it is definitely possible. And the cameras can be very forgiving and the video engineers can be, you know, very skilled at, adjusting the brightness level or the color of something. But I do find that if you've got three people in a camera shot, you know, one of them could be very, very dark skinned and then a medium and then a light skinned or one of them has a white, uh, a white suit on. There are ways to light people that can adjust for that. And, uh, you know, if you have to put an extra 10 foot candles on somebody, uh, you know, sometimes it's the same thing of somebody with gray hair versus black hair or mm-hmm. wardrobe, you end up pumping a little bit more light on one or another. So you just get used to that and learn how to compensate and always make sure that you've got a little bit of intensity left in your, in your tool bag to do it with. Yeah. I feel like I've been seeing a few of them where it's, there'll be a very dark skinned person down center 
and then maybe two very light-skinned backup singers. And you can tell that somebody had lit for the, the background singers and then the, the money will be dark and the, or, or vice versa. They'll, yeah. uh, they'll, they'll set the F-stop to the lead singer who's a dark-skinned you know, a, a singer. And then you'll see the two white girls in the background like, whoa, you guys are really bright. Exactly. It's, it's, well, it's a I, lot I, of work that goes into that. You, re- and you have to have an eye for it. And when people are moving around, it gets tough as well. So uh, there, there are some techniques that, uh, that you, you can apply to that, but mostly it's just paying attention and, you know, holding on for dear life. Sometimes you're just in a tornado <laughs> and, uh, you know, you're holding on. But uh, I actually have something in the book that shows reflectance values. You know, you can reflect uh, 100 foot candles off of a black show card and uh, 50 foot candles off of a white one, and you'll still get more out of the white card than you will out of, out of the black card, you know, that has double the, you know, it just, that's just, you know, straight up science. All right. Physics. I can, I'm trying to imagine the, the perfect storm for something like this. I would imagine, you know, white, dark skin singer with a white tuxedo with a cowboy hat choir of mixed colors i can i I can only imagine that's exactly the the final exam for lighting for television there oh i i and you know i've i've had it many times you know i remember doing it was an outdoor show i there was no rehearsal i didn't get to see anything until showtime and uh (laughs) there were three singers downstage center very very dark complected very very bright white uh, suits. I mean, entire like a tuxedo, white, even the white tie. So there was just no relief at all, and they were constantly <laughs> crossing each other, but just getting far enough away so that the spots would have to split. Um, we didn't have a front wash on that show. I was sort of like walking into a pre-made situation that I didn't have much to to do with in terms of the prep, and I and I was just being asked to do the best I could for it. Um, and uh, yeah, that's a challenge. That's a challenge. I feel like. <laughs> just guerrilla lighting for television right there. Just dropped in and make it, make all these people look gorgeous. Do it. And, and yeah. And like I said, a lot of it is physics, but a lot of it is just sort of knowing, knowing your tricks. And, you know, eventually I just, you know, found a way to create kind of a front wash with the follow spots and, um, and, and ended up improving it a lot without trying to get too fancy with it. Yeah, that's outside the box. Sometimes that's what we have to do, you know? Sometimes that's the best. Yeah, it looked better than it might have looked. It wasn't as good as I wish it had looked. <laughs> right on. So if anybody's looking, I will leave a link to the book in the in the description. The book is called Lighting for Televised Live Events, Making Your Live Production Look Great for the Eye and the Camera. And it is by Mr. Jeff Rabbits and James Moody. Feel free. Uh, it should be up for pre-order by the time that this is uh, aired. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I hope people find it interesting and informative and maybe a little bit entertaining and, uh, and helpful. Well, congratulations on all your hard work and all your efforts. I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing this come out. Thank you, Chris. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thanks for your time, Jeff. Anytime.